So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory. To bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Hello and welcome everyone. Today we are speaking with Dr. Roxani Cristalli, a lecturer or assistant professor at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Their research and teaching focus is on feminist approaches to peace and conflict, which includes memory and loss, violence and care. Prior to her academic position, Roxani has worked as a practitioner in transitional justice, peacebuilding and humanitarian action. Roxani is a storyteller with a website of her writings called Stories of Conflict and Love. You should check that out. We're excited to speak to you today. Thank you for joining us. And maybe I could just start off by giving in the microphone to maybe introduce yourself a little bit further. Tell us how you've been, what you've been thinking about. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're recording this in what feels like the long middle of a pandemic. And so I've been thinking a lot about what it means to derive energy from the classroom, but also to acknowledge everything we've all lost in and beyond the classroom in however long this has been going on. For me, teaching has been a great source of joy, a great motivator for becoming an academic, and certainly something that has kept me within the academy. It's what sustains my commitments. <laughs> And I don't see it as separate from my research. The classroom is where I think with and alongside my students. I don't see it as separate from what the university would classify as service. I think of it as a site of all of these things at the same time. And so a lot of what I'm thinking about is what it means to have my source of joy take such a different form in the past several months and what it means to carry grief and joy and inspiration and fatigue all at the same time, my own and my students. How to recognize that meaningfully, a time of lack of collective recognition of a lot of what a lot of us have lost in the past several months, and how to make all of those core commitments of my pedagogy going forward. It's a really beautiful description of, I think, what a lot of us are grappling with in this semester and also last semester and maybe what we're gearing up to deal with again for who knows how many semesters to come is this idea that we're carrying our own emotions, we're carrying the emotions of our students and also sometimes our colleagues and TAs and administrative assistants and all of the other people that make the classroom space happen. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about what that looks like in practice. How are you carrying that? How are you acknowledging it? And what's working for you in this process of trying to carry so much in such an unprecedented time? 
That is such a good question. And it's an important question because I think making visible the things we're carrying while we're carrying on is a radical act. And I think this semester, we're recording this in October 2021, is particularly peculiar because there's the illusion of normalcy on some campuses, the performance of normalcy. Some students, not my students or me at the moment, are meeting in person. We remain online for a series of reasons. And so I think there's this urge to pretend that the carrying was in the past when in fact it very much lives on in the present in terms of ongoing fear of illness, but also grief, loss, anxiety, caregiving, worry, all the things that have permeated the pandemic in different ways. So how have I carried that? I suppose I've said a lot of yes in the past several months. I have granted several extensions and have regretted none. And I plan to continue to do that after the pandemic. I have listened to a lot of students narrate things that don't feel strictly related to my subject matter in office hours. And I consider that part of my duty as a feminist teacher, not because it's in my contract. It's often not. And it's often extra invisible emotional labor and hard labor that comes with the job but because it's part of what I consider my duty of care as a teacher. And so I have listened to students talk about losing their loved ones or worrying about their loved ones or not being able to travel home or missing life events in their home life away from university, both joyous and mournful that they're not able to be there for in the pandemic. And I think showing up and creating space within the university and within the digital classroom or office hours for them to honor these absences and losses is some of how we can practice care in the classroom. And then I think a lot of the caring happens outside the classroom. So for me, I need to refuel myself by finding something to marvel at and beauty to hold on to and care to seep into me so that it can flow back out. And so I've been thinking a lot about how to do that in my daily life. That's great, Roxani. Thank you. You mentioned this notion of duty of care and that you're a feminist teacher. Can you describe to us what your approach to pedagogy is? Yes, absolutely. So my approach to pedagogy was very much inspired by Bell Hooks's text, Teaching to Transgress, where she talks about teaching as an exercise in freedom. And that feels in many ways paradoxical, because in moving from the U.S. academic system, where I was trained as a PhD student, or the Greek academic system in which I was raised, being born and raised in Greece, before I went to the U.S. for my higher education, The UK system is very regulated in terms of what you can and cannot do in the classroom. So you have to get a lot of approvals for your syllabi or what we call module booklets. There are a lot more policies that govern how much flexibility you have to, for example, grant extensions. The teacher has less autonomy over their own classroom. And so thinking about pedagogy as an exercise in freedom in a highly regulated context is a challenge and a challenge that I like to try to tackle. And so for me, as a feminist teacher, that has meant a few things. It's meant centering care and practices of care in the process of teaching, but also in the content of teaching. 
So thinking about what assumptions do I make about what students already know about being in university? Do I assume they know how to search for sources? Do I assume they know how to ask for an extension? Do I assume they know they can come to office hours? I was the first person in my family to go to university and I never went to university office hours when I was a student. And I lament that because in my mind, in Greece, you only ever go see the teacher if you're in trouble. And I wasn't in trouble. And so I thought, why would I go to office hours? And so part of my feminist commitments is spelling out how a university works <laughs> so that people feel welcome in it and are able to participate in it fully, even when they have unequal starting points in getting there. Another feminist commitment, and this will sound paradoxical, given what I teach, which is often aspects of violence and peace, is joy. I very much believe in teaching with joy and teaching about joy and thinking about joy as pedagogy. And the paradox is obvious in that when you teach about violence, it can be difficult or even perhaps seem tonally wrong <laughs> to teach with and about joy. But for me, that manifests in thinking through how do people survive injustices? And can we teach that, not just the violence these people have experienced? Can we teach poetry in a class on feminist theory? Can we incorporate humor? Can we ask students to share their sources of joy? So how do we make the study of violence not singularly about experiencing oppression and injustice, but also surviving in the world? And that requires centering joy. I'll leave it at that for now. I love that. You know, as someone who also teaches a lot about violence and structural oppression, like I sometimes have to joke with my students that like this class is going to bum you out, you know, <laughs> that like, and to even turn that into a certain kind of shared inside joke in order to have a little bit of moment of breath sometimes, which I'm like finding a balance between let's say attending to our emotional needs as a learning community at the same time that we want to be respectful of the experiences and the harm that we're talking about and the people who experience that harm is like sometimes a very tricky balance to find. And so I'm wondering like in what you do in the classroom, is there like, I don't know, an example you could point to or an activity or like a way that you have found a way to navigate these like both important, but sometimes competing or not necessarily super easy to bring together aspects of teaching the sad stuff, <laughs> the hard stuff. Absolutely. That's a brilliant question. And luckily, another aspect of feminist pedagogy is we're rarely the only ones thinking about these issues. Someone has had this problem before, meaning that someone has imagined a creative way around it. And so I often turn to other teachers and see how do they deal with this issue. And so there's a beautiful text by Eve Tuck that I really, really love on moving away from damage-centered research towards desire-centered research. And I thought, what would that mean for pedagogy? How can I teach about violence for all the reasons you said are important? Because it matters that students be trained to see injustice and to recognize how power works. So how can I teach about violence without being voyeuristic 
without fetishizing that violence, without being damage-centered, and while also allowing for the subject of violence to fall in love, to make chocolate chip cookies as the members of the Kambahi River Collective did, and we speak about in my feminist theories class, to read poetry, to do all the things that people do in a life. And so some of how I've implemented that is by reading what others do, like Eve Tuck. Another way is by encouraging students to take their joy and their survival seriously as scholars of violence. So several of my students for their final essay have taken up Sarah Ahmed's invitation in her gorgeous book, Living a Feminist Life. And instead of a final essay on an analytical, serious topic, and I'm putting that in quotes, which you cannot hear on a podcast, what they do is what Ahmed suggests in the conclusion of her book, they assemble a feminist killjoy survival toolkit. So their final essay is not necessarily about a theme in the class. It's about how will they survive being budding scholars of violence and injustice and making that the assignment, making that the task lends it a certain kind of credence, doesn't it? It says you can take your own well-being seriously. It also creates pedagogical challenges because how do you assess somebody's joy? How do you assign a numerical mark to someone's survival, right? So introducing joy to the classroom is not straightforward or uncomplicated, but I think the challenges of it are not such that the rewards aren't worth it. I imagine assembling a survival kit in this time maybe feels like incredibly pressing for a lot of your students, for you. I'm hearing that and I'm like, can I, I would like, do you have one? I need to spare. That's right. Roxani, I know that you write and think a lot about narrative and you had mentioned that a few times already. Can you tell us how you use narrative in classrooms, but also what do you see as the power of such an approach of narrative? Yeah, again, there's such a wonderful community of scholars and teachers who take storytelling seriously. And the first way that storytelling shows up in my classroom is by looking at teaching as a series of stories that we exchange and that we tell back and forth. And it's a subtle difference, but I don't think of it as content delivery or knowledge exchange. I think of it as stories and stories themselves as a form of knowledge. And sometimes they're personal stories and that can be really tricky for my students. And so I encourage my students to write in the first person. And we speak a lot about practices of feminist reflexivity and why feminist and other critical scholars have embraced first person storytelling as a site of power and resistance against various norms, including academic norms of seriousness. And they find that very hard in the beginning. And so where storytelling is very promising for me and exciting for me, unlearning all the ways in which we're not supposed to tell particular kinds of stories within the academy, or we're not supposed to tell them in the first person, or they're not supposed to be personal or intimate or emotional in order for them to be academic and credible and serious and accessible is a big task. And so a lot of taking storytelling seriously with and alongside and for my students requires starting with unlearning 
what stories we were all told about what an academic sounds like, cares about, writes about, feels, and what the appropriate spaces for that are. And that requires reading, because again, we are never learning in a vacuum or in a void. We're learning in community. And so when my students say, well, can I really tell a story about my dad in this feminist essay? I say to them, well, does Bell Hooks tell stories about her dad? Do the people we read tell stories about their dads? And what permission does that give you? What kind of window does that open? And that window opening for me is what you get through storytelling. And the last thing I'll say on this for now is there is a bargain of vulnerability that storytelling introduces into the classroom and that I cannot expect my students to reflexively write themselves into their texts, to bring their full selves into the classroom in the first person if I don't do that. And so figuring out what kind of whole person can I be in the classroom, what aspects of myself am I comfortable and not comfortable bringing into my identity as a teacher, and in service of what <laughs> has been a really interesting source of exploration for me. And it's really required me to challenge my own notions of what does professionalism sound like, and to find my own authentic voice for being a teacher that allows me to inhabit that space in ways that feel true to me. Yeah, I think that's a really like generative set of questions in terms of like, I totally agree with you that what we expect our students to be able to do, they need sometimes modeled for them. And also there's a kind of reciprocity and like egalitarian norm of communication that I think is really helpful in like, if I'm going to ask them to be vulnerable with me, I have to be willing to be vulnerable, at least in some ways with them. And like, you know, balancing all the things that that requires and like, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you navigate that as a scholar and how this kind of openness and vulnerability, and as you mentioned earlier, like a lot of unrecognized and uncompensated emotional labor, how you navigate doing this really wonderful feminist project with also some of the like disciplinary, academic, and imposed expectations, I think, of gender and femininity that I think sometimes make the extra labor that is required to be excellent, vulnerable teachers also sometimes feel difficult and like part and parcel of an anti-feminist world in which we, I say we as women and femme scholars are constantly expected to do this labor without recognition. And my like male or more masculine presenting colleagues are not expected to engage with teaching in this kind of way. So I'm wondering what your reflections are on that complicated nexus of feels. Goodness, how much time have you got? Because I have got thoughts on this. I suppose I'll start by saying that my own vulnerability at the moment feels relatively bounded and therefore all the more important. So I'm in a secure position. I am not precariously employed by UK standards. And I have a lot of freedom in designing classes that I want to teach. And so that is to say that I am able to be vulnerable in those spaces in ways that many colleagues are not. 
And it's also structurally bounded by virtue of the fact that I benefit from a lot of norms that punish, for example, colleagues of color in ways that they do not punish me as a white woman. So when I speak about vulnerability, I don't speak of it as a prescription. In fact, I don't think of pedagogy as a prescription of you should do X to be a better teacher. I speak of it as a personal aspiration, an aspiration that I fall short of all the time. And so how do I choose my vulnerability, as you asked, as opposed to taking on the labor that institutions assign to me, thus being part of this awful cycle of exploitation that a lot of the neoliberal academies defined by? I think some of the answer for me begins by considering Cynthia Enloe's question, whom do you want to be taken seriously by? And the answer for me in the context of the academy is often my students. It is not the only answer. It is not the unchanging answer, but being taken seriously by my students and having my students be a core, not audience, but group of engagement and partners in thought is what keeps me in the academy. And so the time I dedicate to them feels appropriate when I shift my world in that way. And I think, well, what if I did put students at the center? Um, a second way I think about managing these expectations is what are the moments emotional labor is assigned to me versus emotional labor that I choose? And so I will actively say no when I can when someone just expects me to do something because I teach a class on feminism, because they perceive me to be empathic, because I'm nice or fill in the blank of whatever imagination they have in their head, so that I have room to engage with the students I want to in the ways that I want to, because empathy is a depletable resource and feminist teachers are tired. <laughs> All teachers are tired. And so if I just dole it out and become the designated empath in the department, there will be nothing left for me, for the people I care about, and for the students in front of me. And so I think very often of what are the moments of institutional assumption that I will be the designated empath or the designated feminist or the designated woman or the designated carer in whatever room versus the moments I opt to be that person. And can I use the power and security I have to advocate for more freedom in designing where my empathy goes, not just for myself, but also for those more precarious than me. And the last thing I do is try to protect those around me who are more precarious. And that most immediately is PhD students I work with. It is colleagues on fixed term contracts. And so when thinking about vulnerability in the academy, thinking of union membership, as a way in which we can limit the vulnerability that people didn't choose in their own lives. And thinking of union membership as part of feminist politics, thinking of taking things off your PhD students' plates or making sure that they have somewhere nice to live as part of pedagogy and service and part of the job is how I come at this question. Roxani, we sometimes do talk about the importance of joy in the classroom. And you mentioned that quite a bit, but you also mentioned the terms of marvel or in a sense, awe and also beauty. Can you tell us a bit how that influences how you approach that classroom? Yeah, goodness. So there's a poem by Mary Oliver 
And the poem goes, instructions for living a life. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. And that's a life mantra for me. I think pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Could be instructions for research. <laughs> it could be instructions for pedagogy. <laughs> and in Mary Oliver's terms, it's instructions for living a life. And so in terms of how I bring that into the classroom, I like to share with my students what nourishes me in the world when it's not academic and it seems like it's not relevant or not the point. So last semester, we were still all online on Microsoft Teams, our university, and I tend to a very small garden. It is a potted garden, a container garden. And I've recently started subscribing to gardening magazines. It is that phase of my life, and I'm delighted about it. And so I learned from gardening magazines that my garden gets the wrong light. And as someone who loves light, I was so offended by this. What is the wrong light? Well, northeast in the north of Scotland is the wrong light if you're interested in growing things. <laughs> but I still object to the idea that such a thing as the wrong light exists. And so despite the wrong light, despite living quite far north, for growing things. I persisted and insisted on growing things. And so I started bringing that into the classroom. I was teaching a class called Feminist Theories and Global Politics. And the students were feeling the weight of the pandemic and I was feeling the weight of the pandemic. And it didn't start intentionally as a pedagogical commitment, which also reminds us that a lot of pedagogy is spontaneous and it's you just tell a story about something that happened to you and you notice if it resonated and then you make it a practice. And so one week I showed my students a photo of having planted my dahlias. So my dahlia tubers had arrived and I had just potted my dahlias. And then the next week I had another garden update and then another garden update. And then it became a regular part of my lectures where I would open my lectures with something that is growing or flowering or migrating birds returning to the region. And so when I was looking back on those lectures, they became an unintentional record of spring arriving in our corner of the world. But they also became a reminder that talking about colonialism can sit alongside talking about plants and sometimes talking about the colonialism of plants and talking about critiques of empowerment, feminist critiques of the concept of empowerment can sit alongside beauty. And that alongsideness is, I think, what you get from marveling. It is not that we take beauty seriously because it makes the ills of the world go away. It's because it makes them survivable. And so that is why I bring plants and birds into the classroom. And that is why I garden. And that is why I think of those practices as symbiotic, as opposed to unrelated to each other. Thanks. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned that you're online, this term. And I think there is this like overriding assumption at least in the corners of pedagogy that I frequent, that it's just like harder or less possible to build community over Zoom or the internet than maybe it was when we were all in human meat space together. 
I'm very critical of that assumption, but I hear it a lot, right? That a lot of people are like, we have to go back in person. We have to go back in person because it's the only way to form real human connections. Real human connections are not possible in the screen. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you are navigating what sounds like a very community and connection-based model of teaching and pedagogy on an online medium. Yes, I, I feel very similarly to you. I think any idea about community that starts with, it cannot happen here, is not community generating, right? If we're interested in making community happen, the question becomes how, and it's not a yes or no one. I don't think there are spaces that are automatically conducive to community the same way that I don't think there are spaces that are automatically prohibitive of it. And I would argue there are plenty of students who don't feel any sense of community in our in-person classroom, <laughs> whether there's a pandemic on or not, right? So I am personally online. My colleagues are mostly in person, but I'm personally online because I'm ill. And so that has also colored how I've thought about community and who gets to participate in it. So at the moment, because of personal illness, it would be a risk to my life to be around my students. And community is a life-giving thing. So to also think about the act of community generation as an antidote to illness is some of what has kept me going as a teacher this semester. In terms of concrete practices, the first is to recognize that it won't feel the same. I'm not trying to recreate the in-person classroom experience. I'm trying to imagine a completely different way of being. And that adjustment mentally does really good things for me because it means I don't compare my teaching self to my in-person teaching self, nor do I have the same expectations of the students. And so when I notice, for example, that at the end of a two-hour online seminar, I'm much more depleted than I am in the classroom, I say, you know what, that's okay because energy doesn't flow the same way. And You've given a lot and it comes back to you in different ways. So it's not that you failed to create community or to teach or to engage. It's that the medium gives different rewards and leaves you wanting for different things. The second thing that I'm doing is to realize that people participate in online community in different ways and raising their hand in a Microsoft Teams room may not be everybody's cup of tea. It's often not mine. So creating different entry points, using the chat box, having a running thread every week on Microsoft Teams, which is our university's platform, where people can comment on the class material or not the class material, sometimes posting poems in that thread, <laughs> creating spaces that people can opt in and out of is partly how I recognize that speaking online <laughs> is not the only way that people will relate to each other. And I often note that those spaces become caring spaces. Students start to help each other. They volunteer to read drafts of each other's essays. Or, you know, if I post a poem in weeks one through five, even if there's silence and seemingly non-engagement, suddenly in week six, a student posts a poem in that space because you've shown up with a poem for five weeks and shown that that's a way to participate. And so creating different kinds of entry points that don't necessarily require formal participation in the online classroom by speaking is also community generating. Lingering, so staying after class the way you would as you would walk out of a room, 
So keeping the room open for a few minutes and just chatting has done really good things for me. Not expecting professionalism. So saying that, you know what, it's okay sometimes to not be on mute and to hear people's delivery drivers and to see people's pets and to hear the noises of their homes and to meet the cast of characters in their lives. That is a huge treat because we have been invited if by the force of the pandemic, into people's homes. And so thinking about how does seeing each other's homes allow us to be part of each other's community in a different way than the classroom does has been really eye-opening. And then finally, making room for disappointment. I think sometimes I felt, especially early in the pandemic, that I had to force the cheer, that I had to have three times the energy in order to get us all through it. And that was partly motivated by my commitments to joy, right? And then my own joy became oppressive. And I found a lot of community opened up when I have shared, again, in bounded ways and in ways that have prompted me to think about what can I professionally and vulnerably share in this context, when I've shared what I found hard about this. And I find a lot of space for community opens up when in the middle of a seminar, you say, we're all struggling today, aren't we? You almost hear the collective exhale, even if everyone's on mute. So I think recognizing that this is possibly not anyone's best moment. It won't be my best teaching moment. It won't be their best learning moment. It might not be anyone's best teaching and learning medium. And we can still salvage care and beauty and community along the way has been really key for surviving this moment for me. Roxani, it feels like you have a distinct approach to teaching. So on a, well, you would say teaching research, right? And you'd also say writing and also the world. On a personal note, where do you see these things coming from? Huh, that's, a, that's a really good question. It's funny because everything that came in the conversation up until this point felt to me like it was also on a personal note. And I suppose that's the answer, right? I don't see the inputs that guide my teaching and my research as separate from the inputs that guide how I live. There's quite a bit of flow in my life. I am a person who likes to marvel in the classroom and outside of it in research and in non-academic writing. And I'm well served by that flow. I know colleagues who aren't. And I think it's important to recognize if you're someone who's well served by compartments, who needs your research and your work to live in compartments. And I have been that person. And I still am that person in some ways. But I think the commitments that keep me going as a person, the curiosity about how life shifts if we center practices of love and care, a commitment to marveling, a desire to take beauty and joy seriously, a constant attempt to hold grief and joy in the same embrace. Those are also for me, pedagogical commitments, even if they're not the kinds of things that you would put on a pedagogy statement if you were applying for a job. And so it makes me think about why aren't they (laughs) the kinds of things that we can narrate as part of our professional trajectories and how can we, and here I refer to secure people like me, how can we make more space 
for these kinds of stories in the academy and for people to feel like they can bring more of themselves in the classroom if they want to and for that to be a safe and feasible choice for more of our colleagues. Wow, that's a really beautiful, like maybe closing vision to hold as the kind of university that we and world that we want to inhabit. The a kind of world in which that choice is like available and possible, not just in the abstract, but in a really deep and embodied sense. So yeah, maybe we'll like hold that desire and that vision together. And thank you so, so much for joining us on this episode. It was such a joy. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Fantastic interview. What are your, what are your oh, thoughts? She's so great. I know, right? She's so great. Don't put that in the, rec- or maybe I guess you can't put that in the <laughs> final. She's so great. <laughs> so good. So good. So what are your thoughts? Where are you? Yeah, I thought everything she said was incredible. I really, maybe it's just like the place that I'm at now this semester as someone who is like on medical related leave and also thinking about just like how heavy the pandemic has been as a disabled and chronically ill person for myself. Listening to Roxani talk about how refueling and cultivating joy for herself as a person Mm -hmm. is really central to being also a good teacher because of the somewhat permeable boundary between being a like well-functioning person and being a well-functioning teacher Mm -hmm. and I think like what she is talking about is so much more profound and interesting and deep and real than you know what we often encounter is this like work-life balance kind Mm -hmm. of technocratic approach, right? To like, oh yeah, you need to save time to be a person and like you get that to have that outside of work or beyond work. But really like, I think kind of what she was saying is no, you need to be able to refuel and recharge yourself and like find moments and pockets of joy simultaneously as a human and as a human who is also doing teaching. Mm -hmm. And that's not like a find joy in your personal life separate from your work environment. It's like you as a human being are a unity and you cannot pour from an empty cup. Right. And so like, how are you finding ways to refuel and refill your cup? Like how are Mm -hmm. you finding ways to reconnect with like joy and authenticity and wonderment and amazement and feel nourished as a human being when you're also supporting so many other people Mm -hmm. who are also drained. Yeah, that feels right. I know that she definitely used that term nourished and I use it a lot and think about it a lot as well. How do we find spaces or create spaces in our own classrooms where not only are the students feeling nourished, but so are you. Mm. I think one of the challenges that I've faced recently is what happens if you wrap in all of your spaces of joy into, you know, I say work in quotes because we're not traditionally talking about like work versus your own time. But if we're starting to roll in our spaces of nourishment and joy into our profession, our work, Mm. I think there's another element which becomes very difficult because we understand that you shouldn't be just your work, that you should have Mm -hmm. other 
aspects of your life. But if your work is about justice and community and trying to make the world a better place, then it's seemingly reasonable to pour in your entire self and find nourishment in those spaces with students. And then comes a, a very real reality for folks who are doing this feminist or critical work, which is sometimes institutions will give the language that says folks like that are welcome, but institutionally, there's still sort of like some lag time between actually finding spaces of safety, of long-term contracts, of being able to, to even just teach like this without, mm-hmm. you know, necessarily being, uh, you know, docked on your evaluations. Like, I think, you know, like Roxani had said that sometimes, you know, one can be held or seen as a less serious academic if in fact they're approaching teaching with such seriousness. So it feels right. And I want the institutions to sort of, you know, move faster in making that a space that people can step into rather than sort of still trying to have to navigate as as to whether or not you can come out and say, I really, really care about students and teaching and not be seen as like you're not being serious about other aspects that have been historically valued. Yeah, it sometimes really feels like a double bind where on like the mm. one hand, right, there is a certain institutional pressure to be a good teacher and to be a beloved teacher. And there are certain ways in which that is rewarded. Yeah, You know, it's like part of our reviews and part of the tenure process. And there are awards for this, kind of, you know, like there's a way in which it is a bit rewarded. But there's also, I think, a bias against teaching or the assumption that great teaching comes at the expense of great research. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, for the record, I also think that people who do great service work, especially service work that is focused on social justice at the university and rectifying some of the historical and ongoing harms that are perpetuated in university space are mm-hmm. also seen as like, you know, if you're excellent at that, you must be less excellent at research, that these are yeah. trade-offs rather than a kind of integrated, holistic sort of, that actually being good at one can actually make you better at the other. And this is really how I think about the relationship between my service, my teaching, and my research is mm-hmm. that like, I'm a better researcher because I'm like, have practical experience with students and with practice work. And I think something that Roxani is doing and talking about really compellingly is pushing against the assumption that these are like three separate parts Mm -hmm. of an academic life and that that academic life is a separate category from like who you are in the rest of your life all the time and necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated that as well. The other thing I liked that they spoke about was this centering care. And in that, of course, that was a lot that Roxani had mentioned, but I really love the idea of, she mentioned spelling out how the university works Mm. so that people feel welcomed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes when I'm teaching, I feel like, well, the students already know this. Maybe I'll say it or I'll say it really briefly. But recognizing that not all students come from that same background where, you know, the assumed background where if you're at an elite institution, your parents at least went to college. So to me, I like the idea of trying to center some of those tricks of navigating or experiences of navigating of how the university works. Mm -hmm. I sometimes forget. It just feels like, you know, second nature, you know how things work. And then you realize, oh, yeah, well, we've been in universities for like 20, you know, in school for 20 some years at universities for you know, like, X amount of years. Do not age me. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, you take for granted some of the knowledge that we have. And it's really nice to wrap in this sort of uh, 
ethos of centering care to also think about folks who have no idea, maybe like from their family or from their history of what it means to be an academic, what it mm -hmm. means to navigate the academy, but not just in those sort of hierarchical, hegemonic or historical ways, but in ways that we're actually using spaces to leverage more conversations like these, to leverage more spaces where people that have been historically left out feel more comfortable, feel mm -hmm. like they could see themselves belonging in spaces that otherwise we haven't necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important, especially because I think there's like over the last 20 years, but like especially, especially since the George Floyd rebellion, a move for universities to, for example, racially diversify either their faculty or their student bodies, which is obviously like a good, important mm -hmm. thing to help rectify historical injustices. But I think there has been so much emphasis on getting historically marginalized and historically underrepresented groups into the academy and like not enough thinking and cultural work and changing how do we support those students yeah. and those faculty members once yeah. they get here and not just like extra resources and support though that too but also like what are we doing to change the culture of for example assumption about like everyone knows how the university works everyone knows mm -hmm. how to write an introductory essay everyone knows how the library works everyone knows what office hours are for how are we not just like bringing different people into the space, but how are we changing the space and the norms of the space and the expectations of the space? Yeah, one thing that struck me that points to this direction that you're, you're sort of pushing us towards is when Roxani had mentioned these institutional assumptions of like, well, because you teach feminist X or because you teach feminism, I'm going to request that you do this. Oh my God. Or because you teach indigeneity, I'm going to request that you do this. Mm -hmm. And her being okay with saying, no, I, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to mm -hmm. funnel my energies towards the spaces that you want to have your energies going towards. And mm -hmm. that's something that when I heard that, I loved it, but I know it's difficult. So right? hard. I know it's very difficult because you also feel obliged to have that presence that you may bring, right? As seen as sort of like, you know, the assumption that you would be able to talk about this. Mm, yeah, I also really love this idea of like freedom. I think she said something like freedom in designing where my empathy goes and like mm. where I will dig into this expertise. Like, I love that. I also really resonate with the complication of that. Yeah. Not just because like this is a great place where my expertise could be used, but also like, ooh, if it's not me, what are they going to come up with? Yeah, you know what I mean? That's like, right. there are sometimes you are in yeah. departments or on committees or whatever where like, if you know, you, Justin, are not there, yeah. right, to talk about the implication of the coloniality of the situation or the attentiveness to Native and Indigenous studies. They're going to make some really bad decisions yeah. sometimes. There's also, I think, the pull to feel responsible to give one's expertise in order to prevent some of the, like, really, really bad stuff yeah, that the harm. when you're not in the room that they can do. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting tension. I like thinking about it, also thinking about like nourishment and joy, because some of those those spaces don't nourish and they don't bring joy. But, totally. you know, I'm sure it's all contextual, certainly. Yes, I certainly um, have had many experiences in the university that if I could like Marie Kondo it and be like, this does not bring me joy. This does not yeah, that's bring me right. Joy. <laughs> that would be great. I'm all for this. <laughs> 
there's a few other things I wrote down in my notes. One of them is uh, when she was citing Cynthia Enloe, a feminist IR scholar, international relations scholar, you know, who says, whom do you want to be taken serious by? Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot. And I think that's in the same vein of where do we want our energies going and what are we feeling nourished and how are we feeling nourished? And then also this notion of, you know, maybe we're talking about like integrating oneself into one's classes or their interests in the class. We've always seen it as sort of like this integrative force. But Roxani puts it as an alongsideness, is what she said, to make situations survivable. Yeah. And so I like that because, you know, there's no pressure to say like, okay, this is who I am and I have to put in in all of my classes. But it also doesn't mean that I have to erase certain parts that bring me joy in order to be seen as a person who should be taken seriously or something in the effect of that. But I like the idea of like a long-sightedness rather than a mandate to integrate. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like a really helpful distinction and like different possibilities of ways of relating mm-hmm. kind of spheres. I also will say that something, something that you just suggested reminded me that like one of the things I found really generative in what Roxani was saying is like the idea that survival is like a real and important achievement that requires skills and reflection and sharing and community. Yeah. I think sometimes, especially in the pandemic, we've been talking about like, we just got to get through it. We just have to survive it with like also the knowledge that so many of us have not survived it there are real stakes here and like many people have not survived it. And like the sense that like survival is like the bare minimum and we just have to get through this bare minimum. But I think there's something about the way that Roxani is talking about survival with her students. That's like survival in this expanded sense that like, what does it mean to survive in a world that is so toxic and that is so shot through with structural repeatable inherited historical injustices and that means something more than just get by right do the very the minimum to continue living and i think that's also really important than when we say we're trying to all survive this it doesn't mean that we're trying to like survive with a maximum of damage like we're actually trying to build and gesture towards something beyond that yeah she mentioned love Cookies, poetry, awe, beauty. I think one of my takeaways is uh, when I have control of our departmental community space to make sure there's an oven so that you can bake cookies with students and share meals. I yeah. would follow you to any, follow <laughs> you to any department with a communal kitchen. That's right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. It's been a great conversation with Dr. Roxani Cristali. And we'll all talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. The music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.